Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. A man goes to his doctor, flexing his arm, pointing at his elbow. He says, Doc, it hurts when I do this. The doctor looks him over, pokes and prods a little, then says, Well, that's your problem. Stop doing that. I know, not only an old joke, but not a particularly good one. How is it that humans, logical, reasoning, thinking humans, more often than not, not only fail to address the actual problem, but do things that make our problems much, much worse. On today's episode, first we're going to take a massive leap to the same conclusion we always do, and then we'll gladly accept our marching orders. So, grab your cell phone and put on your Russian fur Ushenka hat, because how could we possibly go wrong? Here we go. Well, this one may be one of the most controversial reviews ever. I'm afraid I might draw the ire of mothers of older generations. I'd say my generation and older. That of Christians, of conservatives, and uh, who knows who else. I'll just warn you, your initial reaction will be to say or shout or internally scream that I'm wrong. And I might be, but this is what we do here. We look at things logically. We engage in deeper thought exercises than others because we're trying to figure out what actually makes logical sense. We don't just look for the easier or most popular answer. And before we begin, just know, I'm not trying to convince you to look at this topic the same as me. I'm not trying to claim I'm right and others are wrong. I just think we need to put more thought into causes and solutions than I see many of us doing. This will become more clear as we go. I think. So let's go ahead and dive in. Found on notthebee.com headline, here's a sad but not surprising statistic. Come, read the heartbreaking details. The article itself is very small, showing a couple graphs, linking a couple tweets, making a few comments. The first graph and tweet comes from an individual named Brad Wilcox. From his Twitter bio, it says he's a professor and director of the National Marriage Project. I know nothing of him. The tweet reads, Quote, depression among teenage girls has doubled since the mass adoption of the smartphone at 2010. And he displays a graph with three lines. The x-axis shows the years 2005 to 2020. The three lines are the percent of U.S. 12 to 17-year-olds with major depression in the last year, broken into girls, boys, and all in that age range. The caption to the figure says that this graph comes from the National Study of Drug Use and Health and that depression is defined by the DSM criteria. The DSM, or Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, is basically the Bible of the majority of mental health professionals. The graph shows a massive uptick in depression since about 2011 to 2020 for girls and a moderate rise for boys. So, the first thing I want to mention is that the scale on the y-axis goes from 0 to 26%. This scale, although I would scale it the exact same based on the data, it necessarily exaggerates the increase. That combined with a fairly narrow graph, horizontally, makes the uptick appear to be threatening to go out of control. The reality is that from 2011 to 2020, 
diagnosed depression in teen girls has risen overall from about 12% to about 25.8%. And boys has increased from about 4.5% to about 8.5%. So both groups have approximately doubled. Following the link to the study responsible for the graph, we come to ifstudies.org. IF apparently stands for Institute for Family. The headline of their study from April 2022 reads, quote, How much is social media to blame for teens declining mental health? There are some additional graphs of data over time in this study. One graph shows that from 1999 to 2021, U.S. high school students have felt sad or hopeless at an increased rate of 28 to 44 percent, and those having suicidal thoughts has increased from 19 to 20 percent. The suicidal thoughts graph shows that it actually fell about 5% from 1999 to 2009, then inflected and fairly steadily rose back up from 2009 to 2021. The sad or hopeless graph showed a steady rate of 28% from 1998 to 2008, a drop of about 2-3% to in 2009, then an increase after that with a large increase from 2019 to 2021. I wonder why. The other graph in the study is for 12 to 14-year-old girls. Emergency room admissions for self-harm and completed suicides. I think completed means these are suicide attempts that were carried out, not necessarily successful. But for this very specific age range of one gender, they show that from 2001 to 2020, self-harm ER admissions went from 2 per 1,000 girls to nearly 7 per 1,000. Suicide attempts in the same period for this very specific demographic went from 1 per 100,000 to 3 per 100,000. Again, these are trends clearly going in the wrong direction. But if one didn't read the captions and information on the graph, all of the information, you could draw some very erroneous conclusions by looking at the pretty pictures. Now, per their study, they rule out the possibility of an overdiagnosis. We'll come back to this. But they do ask the question of if teens these days are just more open about how they're feeling, but then they assume that if that was the case, self-harm and suicide rates would stay flat as depression increased. I'd have to say that it's an unfounded assumption. I don't necessarily disagree with them, but there's no way we could claim this with any confidence at all. Now, from the graphs I just described to you, the author of the study says that this suggests two conclusions. The first is that the COVID pandemic had a major effect on teens, especially teen girls, which I think we all know that, right? It had an effect on everybody. The second conclusion that they can draw from this is that something happened about 10 years ago. So we have to discount COVID as being the cause of that trend. And the author surmises that teens' social lives, spending less actual in-person time with friends and more time online, ergo, it must be cell phones and social media that are causing the problem. The author then draws the conclusion, quote, the high levels of teen depression are not going to go away even as the pandemic fades. Rates might decline a bit as things get back to normal, but as long as teens are scrolling through Instagram more and hanging out in person with their friends less, depression is likely to remain at historically high levels. Well, this isn't a conclusion. This is nothing but making assumptions about the cause and the future possibilities. She then says, quote, If social media is responsible for even some of these increases in teen mental health problems, we need to ask what we can do. Okay, see, if is a pretty powerful word. 
here if social media is responsible. Okay, so she then goes on to say that parents can forbid social media until a certain age or limit the time teens can be on apps. Maybe lawmakers can make laws about what kids can or can't do on these platforms. And then she sums it up with one of the dumbest statements possible. And I say this having heard the same statement made by various people in all sorts of situations, quote, whatever we do, it should be soon. Okay, how about no? All right. The problem we have here is someone that started with the end result in mind. And then they use cherry-picked data, very specific data, to support this conclusion. Then they turned assumptions into conclusions, and now they're recommending knee-jerk reactions based on drama and manufactured fear. My recommendation is um, don't do any of those things. Let's take a measured approach. Let's widen our worldview a little bit. Let's try to pull in all the data, and then, and only then, let's take actions. I actually heard one of the podcasts I listen to daily, Stu Does America, he's the producer of the Glenn Beck program, he went over the study on Friday and he is generally, I would say, rock solid in his analyses as he takes a very measured approach. Although lately, I have a few things I see him holding the line on of his narrative rather than following the actual data. Eh, whatever. He did this show Friday on this report. And he basically swallowed it hook, line, and sinker. He placed the blame for a teen mental health crisis squarely on phones. He cited some other potential causes in passing, but it came down to the same conclusion. We should just do something. Now, to the credit of not the bee, they state right under the first graph, highlighted from the tweet, which was highlighted from the study, quote, correlation does not equal causation. Okay, thank you. And then they hit the next paragraph, but, and that's a larger font and bold, <laughs> quote, but if you don't think handing young people without fully developed minds, literal porn machines, and constant unrestricted screen time in order to interact with friends, post on social media, and read all sorts of nonsense on Tumblr and Reddit contributed to this, I've got a bridge to sell you. Again, I won't disagree that those things are bad, okay. but I just can't go along with drawing a conclusion, then looking at the data, then cherry-picking the data, and then setting up the graphs to appear a certain way, and then standing back, pointing at my graph, eyes wide open, shouting, see? Huh? See? Okay, before we go any further in this, let's look at how this study arrived at these graphs, this mental health crisis. The data came from a variety of sources, but the highlighted graph regarding depression defined depression using the DSM-5, as I stated before. So let's see what their criteria is in order to diagnose a teen as severely depressed. I found on SciCom.net a DSM-5 criteria list that was copied and pasted for us. There are currently eight markers of depression in the manual. Quote, the DSM-5 outlines the following criterion to make a diagnosis of depression. The individual must be experiencing five or more symptoms during the same two-week period, and at least one of the symptoms should be either one, depressed mood, or two, loss of interest or pleasure. So one and two, those are criteria one or two on the list. Let's go through the list. I'll comment as we go. Number one. Depressed mood most of the day, nearly every day. Okay, my first question is, what does nearly every day mean? That's way too ambiguous to me. I'd say out of two weeks, we're talking, what, 12 days? Others may say if it's the majority, eight days, then that's enough. Then that's nearly every day. So right there, anyone can bend the diagnosis to their desire. The same can be said for most of the day. 
to me, that's 12 hours in one minute. That's most or the majority of the day. Or do we not count sleeping time? I mean, I understand that trying to put exact numbers on this is impossible, but it really seems to me that clinically, there should be a little bit more structure to diagnosing this. And then it says a depressed mood. Okay, again, there are some qualifications to that, but I mean, shoot, I've had things go on in life where I've felt down for more than a week at a time. I wouldn't say that I was clinically severely depressed, though. Okay, number two, markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities most of the day, nearly every day. Most of the day, nearly every day. Again, again, subjective. But I think that one and two would kind of go hand in hand, right? I mean, if I'm feeling low, I'm probably not really interested in heading out to go clubbing or anything like that, right? Number three, significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain or decrease or increase in appetite nearly every day. (laughs) Okay, this is awful. So over a two-week period, mind you, a significant weight loss or gain or a decrease or increase in appetite nearly every day. So if your weight isn't stable and your appetite isn't exactly the same nearly every day over two weeks, now you get to check the box on number three. Number four, a slowing down of thought and a reduction of physical movement observable by others, not merely subjective feelings of restlessness or being slowed down. <laughs> so so here they're worried about subjectiveness. That's, that's good. They, they caught up a little bit there. So thought process or physical movement slow down where others notice it. Okay, well, to me, that could go with number one and number two. If your brain is just grinding away on something, it's going to affect other things, right? Uh, number five, fatigue or loss of energy nearly every day. Well, okay, again, if you're dealing with things and you're not eating like normal, wouldn't this go with like number one and two and probably three and four? So number six, feelings of worthlessness or excessive or inappropriate guilt nearly every day. Yeah, this one could signify a problem. Yeah, for sure. But it also needs to be said that the self-esteem movement is unbelievably dangerous. It's just telling us all, especially kids, that they should just love themselves and forgive themselves and know that they're just the bee's knees. In the Christian world, this is the equivalent of the TED Talk type sugary sermon-esque Sunday messages that essentially tell you that God just doesn't want to live without you, and he stares longingly at your picture posted prominently in the center of his refrigerator door. I'm not saying we should always feel bad about ourselves or good about ourselves. We should feel and see ourselves realistically, preferably biblically, and that's all. Number seven, diminished ability to think or concentrate or indecisiveness nearly every day. Okay. I mean, well, good grief. That's me most of the time, nearly every day. But really, doesn't this go with criteria four, a slowing down of thought and probably one and two because that ties back to there. Anyway, number eight, recurrent thoughts of death, recurrent suicidal ideation without a specific plan or a suicide attempt or a specific plan for committing suicide. All right, this one has merit. I mean, seriously, if you're having suicidal thoughts, you need to contact someone to help you with those thoughts. I'd recommend a biblical counselor, but if not that, someone to help you. This is a real one. Quote, 
To receive a diagnosis of depression, these symptoms must cause the individual clinically significant distress or impairment in social, occupational, or other important areas of functioning. The symptoms must also not be a result of substance abuse or another medical condition. All right. I'm no doctor. I'm no psychiatrist. But I do know what I've read and heard about the DSM from the professionals that it leans heavily toward diagnosing everyone with something, because something is literally going on with everyone. And then, of course, when someone is diagnosed with something, what is the most likely and widely recommended and used solution? Uh, Drugs. There's a pill for that. At the very least, it's continued counseling. In some form or fashion, the answer is money. It always comes down to money. And all too often, the answer is drugs. And when you look at these criteria, how hard would it be for a kid that's just talking to a psychiatrist to tick five of the eight boxes? I mean, maybe I'm right, maybe not. But rather than just accept the graft data that were presented, maybe we need to put more thought into things before we just, you know, do something. But no, 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 no. The the premise has been decided. It's cell phones. And it certainly might be. I'm not discounting phones and the 24-7 availability of literally everything on them. I just think before we jump to the phone, we need to look down every other avenue to make sure we're not missing something. Now, incidentally, the first iPhone came out in June of 2007, but this study says that the problem started about 2010 or 11. So I guess that could just be lag of getting the phones into the market, but to kids? I mean, I don't know, maybe. Look at how many, maybe most parents still today fight with kids about getting a phone. That said, I found a Consumer Reports article from July 2011 said as of April 2009, 1.7 million teens owned smartphones. In April 2011, two years later, 4.8 million teens owned smartphones. Now in 2020, we have about 21 million teens. And from what I could find, it appears that the population of that demographic is pretty constant over time. So in 2011, less than one quarter of the teens in the U.S. owned smartphones with that number increasing year over year. But would that cause the spike we're seeing? Well, I don't know, but I do have some thoughts, though. So, Cell phones, social media, the internet, these things are not inherently bad. I know that a lot of bad things can happen with them, but like with a gun, the gun is just a tool. A cell phone and these sites are just tools. I know the argument would be, but you wouldn't just let your kid have a loaded gun. And that's sort of right, not without training and instruction and supervision, at least for a time. Most things are dangerous if we were to just hand it to a kid without helping them understand what we're handing them. A phone, the internet in general, is no different. The problem I have with what I hear from everyone, practically, is we just need to get rid of all cell phones and the internet and make kids grow up the way I did, or something like that. Now, Would I be upset if an EMP went off and fried all of the cell phones? (laughs) Yes, I absolutely would. And if you're a phone owner, you most likely would be too. Now, you say you wouldn't, but you would. Think about it. Cell phones are part of society. They're part of life, as is instant information and instant connection, you know, on the internet. I mean, look, think about how mad you are when the cable goes out or the TV won't work. Think about how mad you get when you keep calling and you got the busy signal. Remember those days? Think about the rage you feel when the internet goes down or even just slows down. Now, we've adapted, we've evolved, if you like, to using these devices and utilizing the convenience. There are only a few households left 
relatively speaking, that don't use these things. Um, my parents, for instance, and um, uh, anyway, I maintain that we don't need to go back in time, that we need federal age limits on phone ownership or whatever. Rather, we need to realize that as far as we can see, the technology of having a miniature computer in your hand, in the hand of your preteen or teen, that's not going anywhere. We don't need to go backwards as the kids aren't going backwards. We need to help them grow up in the current world. Now, I'll come back to that idea in a moment, but I want to hit this depression thing. There's no way for me to corroborate this. This is my gut feeling. So please understand this as I proceed. So first, I believe that however depression was classified and counted before, we're grossly overcounting it today. I'd liken it to something like classifying every upset tummy the evening of October 31st as a fast-moving, short-lived, epidemic, stomach virus-affecting children, seemingly healthy, having just trick-or-treated for the last few hours. Rather than just us saying, ah, you ate too much candy, huh? Now you're going to puke. What have we learned? Looking at the DSM criteria, knowing the point of the DSM, knowing that the DSM is Freudian-based with not even a sideways glance at the spiritual aspect of the human, I feel confident that clinical severe depression is being overdiagnosed. Anyone can have depressed feelings over the course of most days out of a two-week period. Like I said, the DSM is weighted to diagnose everyone with anything. Now, that said, I think we can all agree that kids these days seem to be having a harder time dealing with life. Now, this became especially apparent during the idiotic COVID lockdowns and the useless teacher union bosses fighting to keep kids out of school. I mean, as much as public schools are just awful, as a general statement, the lockdowns were worse in a variety of ways. Many parents even took the lockdowns to mean that none of us can go anywhere ever until the all-clear is given, including some parents that literally locked their crying child in a room by themselves for days or weeks on end because they caught COVID. I don't know what kind of monster you need to be as a parent to do something like that. I'd rather die knowing I was loving my kid than to be an inhuman, fear-fueled, unthinking government zombie. Again, I digress. COVID and the morons that ran that clown show is a specific anomaly, and I would expect that to be a blip on the historical charts. But what is or are the causes of kids losing the ability to navigate through their teen years? Is it really the phone? Really? I have a hard time placing that much power on a phone. Now, prior to the phone, prior to COVID, as we saw kids having more issues in life, and yes, life for kids was getting steadily harder even before the smartphone. What was our go-to answer back then? Well, I tells you, ever since they done took God and the Ten Commandments out to school, right? And I would agree. In fact, I think the cell phone usage, or more accurately, the misusage, is a symptom, not the cause. If you have brain cancer, which brings with it massive headaches, just to keep popping aspirin to tamp down the headaches while ignoring the cancer, that would be stupid. Well, we could try to take the phones away, the internet, computers, tablets, mandate the schools can't have any of that stuff, pass laws governing age restrictions, etc., etc., and I maintain that we may see a slight shift in the trends, but it's a symptom, not the cause, so the trends will continue trending. We say that back in my day, we got out and did stuff with our friends. I agree. And I agree that we are designed by God to be sociable creatures. But again, just because it was done this way in my day doesn't mean it's the only way and all other ways are deadly dangerous. 
I mean, for example, ask a climate activist what the correct temperature of the planet should be. At best, they'll say, oh, it's the temperature it is right now, if they even go that far. Then ask them why. That's when you'll hear the crickets. You know why? You know why it's supposed to be this temperature? Because we're used to it this way. We want it this way. And if you're the likes of Al Gore or John Kerry, you make a buttload of money by screaming about it. And we're talking about a big butt. Their screeching about wanting to keep it the same as always is the same as our screeching. No matter what these self-professed climate gurus do, the climate will do what it does. No matter how many polls and studies we do regarding tech usage by kids, kids are going to be exposed to and in usage of a lot of tech. And there are other factors that I believe could be contributing to depression. Did you know that in 2007, the UN studied violence against children? And of course, their goal was not to stop kids from being beaten and killed. I mean, it might have been, that might have been part of it. But what they wanted to do was stop all humanity from using spanking as a form of correction. You know, like the Bible says to do. Could that be a factor? The removal of discipline and correction from small humans who don't have fully formed brains yet? What about the seeker-sensitive movement in the church, really coming to prominence around the year 2000 and gaining steam every year? The kids are told by alleged pastors and celebrities and entertainers that God just love, love, loves them. But they're not told about sin, about salvation, about the gospel. No, no, no. Instead, they're growing up with stupid youth group games and pointless mini-devotionals given by unqualified, slightly older than them, young people. They hear a TED Talk in church on Sunday morning if they hear anything at all. Could the tepid, squishy, touchy-feely Christianity aimed at making pagans feel comfortable be a contributing factor? Eh, maybe. What about the woke culture? It started in the early 2000s, but by 2010, it was closely associated with left-wing social justice, LGBTQIA2 plus causes, feminism, racial justice, and on and on the list goes. The kids are inundated with either how terrible they are or how oppressed they are. They're not allowed to be kids anymore. And now the push from these rainbow-haired, pierced and tattooed, genderless activists that are masquerading as teachers who should be in prison for grooming our kids is to turn them gay or bi or, most importantly right now, trans, as well as to make them suspicious of their parents and God-denying atheists and the next generation of woke-tivists. Girls are being specifically attacked, piece by piece being destroyed as a unique gender, as someone to be protected and cared for. I mean, I'm no scientist. I mean, I am. But but doesn't the godless world that's being pushed all around them, onto them, into them, in school, on TV, and movies, and books, and yes, on social media, could that have something to do with this issue we're seeing? Would removing the phone at all, if that were even a plausible idea, would that fix this? Would it? You know, I watched my kid grow up through tablets to an Android phone, to an iPhone, watching her grow up from a very sociable kid in preschool and elementary school, to having behavioral problems, to being a kid with only a couple friends in middle school, to having multiple friend groups in high school. She not only does things with her friends physically, she also interacts with these groups nearly constantly through social media. I maintain that we're never going to put social interaction via social media, apps, and electronic devices back in the bottle. These are things that are here, and the more time we spend furiously decrying the evils and horrors that our kids aren't doing the things that we did as kids, the less time we have to actually help our kids navigate this digital, and might I say, current world. Now, we started my kid out with a safe tablet, the Nobby, if you remember those. I don't know if they're still around or not anymore. 
then into a full-blown tablet, but it had a parent side and a child side. Then a normal tablet, but with heavy parental controls, kid versions of apps, things like that. Then a cell phone with, again, heavy controls. Then the iPhone with me asking and discussing things like boundaries, dangers. Now, I know for a fact that along the road, she's misused her devices to some degree, and we've talked about it, and we've handled it in various ways, depending on what it was. But as much as I would have liked to, I couldn't and can't bring myself to live in a world that doesn't exist. You know, the magical land of no cellphonia. If we look back in time, electricity was of the devil. Records were of the devil. Rock music was of the devil. Radio was of the devil. Movies were of the devil. Talkies were of the devil. Televisions were of the devil. Computers are of the devil. The internet is of the devil. And now cell phones are probably the actual devil. And you know what? I kind of agree, probably in some form, with every one of these statements. But that doesn't change the fact that we live in this world at this time. And we need to teach our kids and ourselves how to navigate this world. Not complain about the world, wish it was the way we had it, and then run and hide from where we are. We've either all seen or heard of whatever that Amish reality TV show was on whatever channel it was or is, I don't know, maybe it's still going on, but these kids have been sheltered their entire lives. They turn 18 and they're released into the world for a little while, love it or hate it, and they're now getting a fire hose of freedom and they lose their minds. If all we do is play the blame game and then do something, but that something isn't helping our kids understand the world around them and how to navigate through it all, giving increasing levels of freedom, knowing they'll make at least some bad choices, well, then we're setting them up for massive failure and degeneracy, which will lead to depression, self-harm, and suicide as they make horrible choices because they have never been allowed to see or experience the world as it is. More importantly, the old statement of, since they took God out of schools, is very apt. If we, and I'm speaking to Christians now, if we don't educate and display the world through the Christian lens for our kids, this is where we're doing the true disservice to them. The only way to navigate, I mean, the only way to even slightly understand the world as it is today, is to show them the truth found only in the Bible. This world is a sin-cursed wreck of a planet, a mere distorted shadow of what it was originally and what it will be again in the future. They need to understand sin and how sin infiltrates every aspect of life. We need to teach them the dangers of this world, the traps, the pits that have been set up for them. We need to teach them that rules, like the Ten Commandments, may be restricting to the lifestyle that they, and if we're honest with ourselves, we want, but they're not there to restrict us at all. They're there to guide us safely through life. And ultimately, they're there to show that we aren't capable of following them even slightly. So we need someone who can, who can not only keep the whole law perfectly, but somehow transfer that innocence, that perfection to us, so we can at least take credit for it. It's almost like we need, for lack of a better term, like a savior. Ooh, that's good. I wonder if anyone has thought of that one yet. See, the Bible says that we are not of the world, but we're in the world. At the same time, we don't want to be conformed to the world. We don't want to be like the unsaved masses, but that doesn't mean we must Amishize our, our kids or ourselves. It may be that we exist in this world as a citizen of this planet at this time in this epoch of history that we use the things and do the things that the unsaved do, but we do them differently. Not always perfect, but differently to the point that people take notice. We hang out with friends, but we don't use the same language. We go out with others, but we don't drink alcohol, or at least we don't get drunk. We use social media, but not to push or push past the limits of what we will and won't display and show and advertise. 
We use the internet, but we refrain from misusing the internet. And on it goes. And as parents, it's our job to help them grow in this world, to forbid, then restrict, then monitor, then guide, then release. All the while, not just telling them what and how, but more importantly and most importantly, why we do things differently. As parents, we do the best we can. We pray for guidance and protection. We teach, we correct, and ultimately we know that God is sovereign, that his ways are higher than our ways, that it's not up to us to make our kids make the right decisions, just as it's not up to us to get them saved. That's the job of the Holy Spirit, and his plan and his abilities are infinitely greater than ours, literally. So to wrap this up, is depression increasing in teens? I don't know, maybe. If it is, are cell phones to blame? If it isn't, are cell phones destroying the lives of these kids? Although I agree that the misuse isn't good, I just can't give cell phones that much power. Regardless, we live in this world at this time, not in a different world, not in this world at a different time. And as much as I'd love for all kids to grow up in the same era as I did, that's just not how time works. No matter how we feel about it, doing something, which usually means going back in time, isn't going to fix anything. From a human worldview, we must help kids to live in the current world, the what and the how part. More importantly, most importantly, from a spiritual standpoint, we must help our kids understand why. Why the world is the way it is. Why the rules are what they are. Why they're being attacked from all sides. And why they can overcome The only key to all of that, of course, is Jesus. Well, comrades, I see you've been allotted some time by our benevolent overlords to listen to some anti-state propaganda. Please remain where you are. You'll be escorted to a very nice rustic accommodation in Siberia soon. Oh, and welcome back to part three of our look at the communist goals for America. As the Russians say, Глаза боятся. Oh, what a beautiful language. That translates to, quote, The eyes are afraid, but the hands are still doing it. And doesn't that just explain most of us pretty much every single day of our lives? Is it just me? Can't be just me. As a brief reminder, in part one we discussed where this list came from, where communism fits on the global political spectrum, and the horrors of communism. In part two, we covered the first four on the list with what I think we can safely conclude successful implementation in America of three out of the four. So we might as well dive right back in, starting with goal number five. And we're going to throw goal number six in there as well, as they're fairly closely related. So goal number five, quote, extension of long-term loans to Russia and Soviet satellites. Goal number six, Quote, provide American aid to all nations regardless of communist domination. Well, this one is an interesting one. So why would the Soviet Union want to be granted loans from the United States? This is purely speculation on my part. I did some searching, but I couldn't turn up anything concrete on these two goals. We're going to do a little bit of logical guesswork here. There's a principle called other people's money. The principle of other people's money basically boils down to leverage. You can use your own money to make money. That takes a long time, usually, before any real momentum can take place. However, if you can leverage other people's money, large quantities of it, invest it, use it wisely, 
your wealth creation and thus your power can take off rather quickly. So the Soviets, they may have been using this concept to use other people's money to generate wealth for them, and since the loans were long-term, well, if they defaulted, huh, such is life. Now, they also may have wanted to try to burden the United States, sucking the taxpayer dollars out of the country through loans and aid, causing us to dive deeper into debt, which will eventually destroy a nation. You would think that the Soviet Union would provide the aid for Soviet states and countries that were impoverished. Isn't that what communism does? Isn't it supposed to provide for the masses more fairly and equitably? Now, the reality is communism can't provide for everyone, at least not equally and not all of what we would consider to be a reasonable standard of living. You must have money makers to provide for the money takers. You must have wealth creation in order to have charity. But if you're a communist state, not only do you not have money makers, you definitely don't have any wealth creation, at least not by the common individual, not by anyone interested in giving charity. So the only way to bridge the gap would be to look to the outside. By necessity, communism must have outside help if they're to continue on. Back to the idea of loans. It's possible that they wanted to entangle themselves to the United States, you know, like strapping yourself to a partner in a three-legged race. If the U.S. attacked Russia because of the financial ties, it would be effectively attacking itself as well. If Russia faltered, the U.S. would feel the brunt of the fall. Although, unfortunately, I'm not sure what the purpose was exactly, all of those at least seem plausible to me. And over the years, the U.S., other nations, the United Nations, and the International Monetary Fund, which both the U.N. and the IMF being largely propped up by the United States, have either loaned or just given billions upon billions of dollars to the Soviet Union, Russia, and other communist nations. In fact, the world right now is so tied together at this point, we don't just have the idea of MAD. Remember, we covered this in the previous episode, Mutually Assured Destruction. We actually have added to that now MAED, Mutually Assured Economic Destruction. Basically, if one economy in the world goes down, they're all going down. So the countries that have better give to the countries that have not, or else ain't nobody having nothing. And this practice to give or loan money and aid to Russia as well as China and other communist nations, well, this continues to even this day, although the Ukrainian thing may have dampened it a bit for Russia. <laughs> oh, that will only be temporary. Just trust me on that one. In fact, in July of 2020, the House passed a massive appropriations bill, but right before it reached the floor, the Democrat-controlled House Rules Committee slipped in a little $3 trillion guarantee to the IMF. Inside of that was nearly $300 billion for Iran, Venezuela, Syria, China, and Russia. Now, whether these tactics work or this bill got passed or not, it really makes no difference for this discussion. My point here is that this process of giving money to the communist nations, well, that's alive and well. And it's coming from the Democrat Party. The party incidentally, of the individual who in 1963 read these communist goals into the congressional record. Oh my, how times have changed. Now, I think we can check this box. The communists, ah, they kind of won this round as well. So goals five and six can be considered complete. If you're keeping score at home, that's now four and five out of six. Goal number seven, quote, 
grant recognition of Red China, admission of Red China to the UN. So the UN was chartered and went into force in 1945, taking place of Woodrow Wilson's brainchild, the virtually useless League of Nations. Ironically enough, the United States never actually joined the League of Nations. Anyway, digression. The goals in this charter of the UN sounded very honorable. They wanted to prevent any future world wars by maintaining international peace and security. They wanted to protect human rights. They wanted to deliver aid and promote sustainable development and maintain and enforce international law. Of course, today, they're more interested in violating human rights and promoting things that... Uh, kind of go against what America at least used to stand for. Again, more digression. Stop it. When the UN was chartered, some of the original members included the United States, the Soviet Union, and the Republic of China. So if this happened in 1945, why in the late 1950s was there a communist goal of getting China into the UN? Well, in 1945, China was not yet a communist nation. It was the Republic of China. Not a great government, but this was basically an authoritarian, single-party, military-style rule government system. It was technically a republic, as the leadership represented the people, but with a single party, I mean, you know, would you like chicken or chicken? The last leader of the Republic of China was Chiang Kai-shek. Well, after the Chinese Civil War resumed post-World War II, the People's Republic of China, or better known as the Communist China that we know today, took control in 1949. At this point, China had no representation in the UN. A few attempts were made to get China back into the UN, but it wasn't until 1971 when they were finally voted in as members once again. And within a year of their acceptance on the world stage, Richard Nixon visited China, thus normalizing relations between the US and Communist China. So, goal seven, done and done as of 1971. So now we're up to six out of seven goals ticked off the list. Goal number eight, quote, set up East and West Germany as separate states in spite of Khrushchev's promise in 1955 to settle the German question by free elections under supervision of the UN. Okay. After World War II, as part of the terms of surrender, Germany was split into four zones controlled by the four major players of the victorious allies, the U.S., the USSR, the U.K., and France. This even extended to the city of Berlin, which was also split into four zones, even though the city was fully in the Soviet-occupied territory. The goal was for each army-controlled territory to be denazified, but the Soviets had a unique way of going about it. They not only rounded up the Nazis, but also declared that, you know, people like large landowners, they declared them to be Nazis as well, so they arrested them and then confiscated their land. The agreement amongst the controlling nations was to have each quadrant perform democratic elections. Again, the Soviets did, on the surface, allow free elections, but behind the scenes, eh, they were in control and eventually forced all parties into a single communist party, which of course was controlled back in Moscow. Well, tensions grew throughout the next few years. The Soviets wanted to force Germany to pay reparations to them for the massive financial burden and economic toll they placed on the USSR to fight the war. The other three nations did not want to force Germany to pay reparations. The reasoning behind not wanting that was simple. This is what happened the last time. See, after World War I ended, the Treaty of Versailles forced Germany to pay reparations to those that they had wronged. Because of the massive burden on the country and the people and the poverty that it set up, well, this created the perfect sort of scenario for a strong, 
charismatic, nationalistic leader to take charge, fly the double birds at the rest of the world, and that's exactly what happened. In comes Hitler. Soon after that, yet another world war. Well, the USSR struck a deal with the three Western Quadrant holders. They would produce agricultural goods in the East, sell it to the West, and that money could be used, at least in part, as reparations. The problem was, as is the problem in every communist nation, they couldn't or didn't produce anything, or at least not enough, so the money never came in. The West took a different tack with the merging of the UK and the US zone and then economic investment by them and France into their now two zones of Germany. They replaced the badly inflated currency and infused them with cash. The Soviets didn't approve of this. By 1949, the Soviets protested by blockading Berlin from being able to freely associate with the rest of Germany. This happened as the other three nations tried to push this new currency, the Deutschmark, into the Soviet-controlled region. The blockade was largely ineffective as the other three allies airdropped food and fuel into West Berlin, and the Soviets could do nothing to stop them, so the, the blockade eventually failed. Starting in 1952, though, the Soviets started to police the border of their quadrant, but the border was still open. People could come and go as they pleased. Then on the night of August 12, 1961, East German soldiers rolled out miles upon miles of barbed wire along the border of what would become the Berlin Wall, completely separating the two into East and West Germany. Now, By the time that this goal was read into the congressional record, this job was already done. The goal was already accomplished. To finish up this story, for 28 years, this border wall stood, topped with barbed wire, patrolled by armed guards that would shoot to kill anyone that would dare try to cross the border. But in 1989, as the Soviet Union was clearly starting to crumble, mostly because of the economic pressures put upon it, as they tried to keep up in just about every aspect with the United States, As unrest and protests grew in East Germany, as pressure mounted by President Reagan and then President Bush to tear down the wall, as the leaders decided they would slightly loosen their grip on the citizens in order to calm the tension, but as a spokesman at a press conference confusingly delivered the prepared remarks that were handed to him right before he spoke them without him having enough time to even read them before saying them, Well, people started to flock to the wall to get through, thinking that they were going to be able to just walk on through. Confused guards, also not knowing what they were supposed to do based on the remarks, well, they opted to open the gate rather than fire into the crowd. And the rest is history. The wall came down, the Soviet Union collapsed, East and West Germany became Germany again, and a more Western-style government was established. But back to our communist goals. Did they accomplish setting up East and West Germany? Well, they did, but then it fell apart again. So for now, I think we're going to have to keep that box unchecked. If that's a goal and that's what they wanted to have happen, I would think they'd want it to be met and stay met, not just stay met for a few years. So we're at six out of eight made. Okay, we're, we're gaining. Goal number nine, quote, Prolong the conferences to ban atomic tests because the United States has agreed to suspend tests as long as negotiations are in progress. By the mid-1950s, the United States and the Soviet Union started discussions concerning the ban on nuclear testing programs. Both nations were in hot pursuit of the grand champion of the world prize given to the nation with the most nuclear weapons. 
At the same time, the public at large wasn't real keen on any of the testing that was being done of these nuclear weapons, you know, just in our atmosphere. So the U.S. and the Soviet Union, and eventually Great Britain, started work on a treaty amongst the nations. Every time they seemed to be close, the Soviets would balk at usually the idea of having physical inspectors being allowed into their country to ensure that they were complying with the treaty. And then at one point, they were close again, and a U.S. spy plane was shot down over the USSR. And then they were close again when the Cuban Missile Crisis kicked up. Finally, in the second half of 1963, the Nuclear Test Ban Treaty was signed. So it appears that the communists won this battle to drag the talks on and on. But why? Well, as was usually the case, the Soviets were a step or 20 behind the U.S. and everything. The U.S. may have stopped the testing, which would effectively stop production of these nuclear missiles. But do we really think the Soviets stopped? Why do you think they balked every time the concept of boots-on-the-ground verification came up? Yeah, I don't know if this prolonging of the test, the pause on the U.S., was successful in the greater purpose it was meant for, but once again, the Soviets were able to get this done as well. So now we're up to seven of nine. We're nearly at a B-grade level for, you know, getting the communist goals into America. And I think that's where we'll need to leave the commies for now as our time grows short. So... As we wind up this segment, just remember, which means, if you're given something, take it. But if you're being beaten, run. So until we meet again for part four of our look at the 45 communist goals for America, as I always say, and you can't prove I don't, better dead than red. Bye for now. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful, and until next time, God bless.